So Money Episode 1011, Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I wouldn't stop investing as you regularly would. That doesn't mean go try to buy the dip. That means if you have a plan where you put 100 bucks a week into your uh, 401k or your IRA or, or your SEP account, don't stop doing that because markets are cyclical and they will revert to the mean eventually. This will pass. I can't say when, but you shouldn't stop your strategy as long as it is in line with your goals and your values. Uncertainties surrounding the global spread and impact of the coronavirus fueled the stock market's decline last week, the worst since 2008. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is Caleb Silver. He is editor-in-chief of Investopedia, and he's here to talk a little bit about why it's important to not get caught up in all the market frenzy. And it's not the only reason I've asked Caleb to join me on the show. Truth is, I'm not sure why I waited this long. He's one of the leading financial journalists of today. His career in business news began at Bloomberg, where he worked as a senior television producer and was nominated there for a 2003 Emmy. He later ran CNN's business news and then formed his own production company and is now at Investopedia with the mission of creating great educational content to inform the independent investor. We talk about current market conditions, but also Caleb's early money lessons growing up. The biggest money mistake he made involving Lehman Brothers, and how his first assignments in journalism producing wildlife documentaries had little to do with business, but taught him so much about entrepreneurship. Here's Caleb Silver. Caleb Silver, my friend, finally, welcome to the show. I'm going to get the whole Silver family on eventually, I promise. Well, we'd be delighted to come on all together or one-on-one, but it's great to be on, and I'm a big fan of you and your show. Thank you. You've been a big supporter of me and my career for many years. And your sister, Claude, is such a superstar. She was a guest on the show. She graced the podcast. And I actually knew you before your sister. So um, it's a nice homecoming to have you on the show. You've been with, uh, you know, following my career and been a big supporter of my career before this podcast even launched. And can you believe it's been a thousand episodes? Uh, congratulations on a thousand episodes. I think you get some free t-shirts and hats that go with that. Um, <laughs> but for real, you've built a, a really nice career and you've been helping people as long as I've known you. And this podcast is just another way of doing it. So I'm honored to be on. And the fact that my sister was on just makes it even cooler. Well, Caleb, I think I thought I knew a good bit about you as far as your career, but I was surprised to find that you originally started out in journalism doing wildlife documentaries. So from wildlife documentaries in South America to now running the uh, team at Investopedia, wildlife to finance. How do you cross that bridge? Uh, Take me back to the early days. Well, there's a through line there. Did you see it? Uh, wildlife and and uh, and behavioral uh, investor behavior—they go. It's hand a zoo hand. everywhere you go, right? <laughs> well, what's what's not on on my bio on most bios is the fact that I was in the restaurant business for twelve years. So I actually started my career in the restaurant game as a cook and a waiter and a manager in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So that's where it actually all begins. 
But being from Santa Fe, New Mexico, I grew up as a Boy Scout. I grew up in nature. I grew up in the mountains. Um, I was very interested in documentaries to begin with, and I was very interested in nature. So those two kind of went hand in hand. And I started, after I made enough money in the restaurant business, uh, I bought myself some TV gear. I bought myself a TV camera, a tripod, some audio equipment. And I realized, and this was in my early 20s, uh, when I went back to New Mexico from college, I went to Colgate up here in New York. When I went back, the news bureaus did not have stringers or an actual bureau in Santa Fe. They were all based in Albuquerque, which is an hour south. Um, so I made myself available to the news stations as sort of a stringer reporter uh, with camera that could go cover stories in the northern part of the state. And that got me in the game once I learned how to shoot. Um, uh, I was able to start working with news stations and then begin, being able to cover those stories and get enough clips. I started pitching myself or my production services to environmental groups and they started to seek me out as well. So I started doing environmental educational documentaries. That's how it all began. And there's some steps along the way that eventually got me to, uh, to business news. I can tell you about those, but that's where it began in New Mexico because I was there and I had the gear. But what I'm also learning from your story is that you approach this with the mindset of business and entrepreneurship because you basically created this opportunity for these news bureaus. They didn't know what was out there. They didn't realize they had this need. And you pitched this to them. That perhaps was an early sign of your passion for not just journalism, but maybe even, you know, a business mindset. Absolutely. And, and my father is a venture capitalist and an investment banker. So I grew up around, um, you know, businesses trying to make it, trying to get funding, trying to launch. So I had a little bit of that in the DNA, which may not be a surprise given my role uh, in business news over the last 24 years. So I had a little bit of that, but I did start a real small business, a genuine small business as an entrepreneur, saw the need in the marketplace um, and realized that if I had the gear, a truck and the wherewithal, and the, and the journalistic um, curiosity, I could make a nice little living out of it. And this was pre-internet. I mean, the internet was around, but we weren't using email. Uh, it was almost, you know, in the very early days of cell phones, too. So a lot of this was yellow pages, uh, picking up the phone, calling the news bureaus, going and shooting the story, driving my truck, you know, down to Albuquerque, and then dropping off the footage at the news bureaus be before you could, uh, you know, send video through the internet before that was even a thought you know the internet in those days in the early 90s was was text with some really grainy pictures so this was all ham and egging it with um you know very basic equipment back in the day but it turned into a, a great start for my career so i'm really glad that i did it and later you got a start at bloomberg that's where your business news uh, career took off uh what was it like working at bloomberg it was great and it was it was like getting an MBA, but being paid to get it while making TV news and business. And I went to Bloomberg. Uh, I was a uh, grad student at NYU's Carter Institute for Journalism. So I got a master's to master of the arts in journalism from NYU. And then they had a really good uh, career placement program and a tight connection with Bloomberg. And Bloomberg was in the early days of creating Bloomberg television. And it was almost anything goes. Um, and the fact that I had the skills where I could shoot television with a TV camera. I knew how to edit, so I, if I had to do it myself, I could, or I could convey what I wanted to my editor. And the fact that they were just developing their TV voice was a great time to be there, but a great time to learn business. And this was in the late 90s when the internet bubble was starting to get kind of frothy. Uh, so we were watching companies like Pets.com and the early days of Amazon and the AOLs and Netscapes of the world evolving into these brands, going public with these sky-high valuations, and it was a frenzy 
Um, not unlike a few that we've seen in, in the last few years, that was a great time to participate as a journalist. And I learned a ton. Um, and we basically created the voice of Bloomberg Television at the time because it was such a brand new thing for Bloomberg. And it's established and it's nice to see it's still on the air today. But I love working there. And and news, when I was there, Mike Bloomberg was there in the newsroom as yes. the CEO of the company. He he and that's how he operated for many years until he became mayor. Uh and and then, you know, subsequent to that, uh you know, doing other things, but I've many friends who work at Bloomberg and it was just normal to see him in the pit every day. Yep. So you would, all new hires were marched by his desk where you had to meet Mike. And it was pretty intimidating because this is, you know, this was a multi-billionaire who created this incredible terminal. Um, talk about an entrepreneur. I mean, Mike, Mike really uh, fit the bill and everybody had to meet Mike on their first day. And I remember being in line and, and you had to go back past his desk and he'd be, you know, working on something on the Bloomberg terminal. And they would say, Hey Mike, this is Caleb. He just joined. He's going to be a TV producer, uh, you know, working with this team over here. And he would stop what he was doing, look up at you and say, don't screw it up. But in, in less, in less sweet terms, uh, and then go back to work. That's all he would say. He wouldn't even shake your hand. He would just look up and say, don't screw it up and get back to work. So. <laughs> yeah. Don't make me regret this. Yes, exactly. Um, but that's about as much as I had to do with him while I was working there. Although sometimes he would come into meetings where if we had TV planning meetings or editorial meetings. And one thing Mike would do, which I actually started to do uh, later in my career, was he'd come into the meeting. And he'd say, what are we talking about? And we'd say, oh, we're talking about uh, you know, election programming. Uh, and he'd say, why is this meeting booked for an hour? Uh, we got a lot to cover. He said, no, no, no. This is a 15 minute meeting. Take out all the chairs in the conference room. This is a standing meeting. We're going to get it done in 15 minutes. And he would like sure that. get it done. Yeah, I liked it too. Get it Decisions done meeting, not a let's toss the ball around meeting. I learned a lot from, from working there, a little bit from working for him, although I never worked for him directly. But what I really learned was how business work, how the markets work, how interest rates work, how this whole uh, ecosystem of markets in the economy work and work together and how they affect real people. So it was a great education for me. And speaking of how the markets work and the business world, a lot of it is cyclical. A lot of it is there's a predictability factor that, you know, markets go up, markets go down. The Fed releases interest rate news. It's sort of when I was in the thick of things, it was very much like you just follow the calendar and then, you know, occasionally uh, there'd be some sort of poppy news. But for you, what excites you most about covering this landscape, given that there are a lot of days where it feels very routine? Right. Well, that's the thing about business news, and you nailed it. It is on the calendar, right? We know when companies report quarterly re uh, results. We know when they report their earnings. We know when the Fed meets on interest rates. Um, you know, we know when certain things are supposed to happen, even things like the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting or the Apple shareholder meeting. These are things you can program around. It's what happens in between that. That's what we call news. So when you get those surprises in between or a company uh, recently, Microsoft, lowering its forecast because of coronavirus, you know, that's when news happens and that's when you really have to start putting things together and thinking about uh, what is the main and most important story for individual investors. That's who I'm speaking to now. And what's the best way to convey it to them? So I like the things that come out of nowhere. Um, but I also like the story of companies and the people that run them. I think that's fascinating. And I think as you know, consumers and investors, there's so much to learn from the companies that we, that we buy things from or that we depend on for certain things and about the people who run them and the strategies they use to run those companies. That's what fascinates me. It's the storytelling part that involves the people and the brands themselves that I love the most. 
Well, this podcast is dedicated to talking to guests about their p- financial stories. We're going to get to some more juicier stuff on your, you know, upbringing and maybe some money mistakes, but because we have you and it, it, this is such a timely moment with coronavirus and all the scares and companies lowering their uh, forecasts and the stock market obviously uh, getting a beating. What do you make of all of this? And I'm not going to ask you the the question everyone asks, which is, should I stop investing in my 401k? No, you should not stop investing in your 401k. But can you put this in perspective for us a little bit? Because a lot of us listening may not know just how this really stacks up against some of these other threats uh, that that face the market that is out of our control. Is this something that you can see um, maybe going away after a couple quarters or what? I mean, this is so unpredictable. Right. It's super unpredictable. And it's hard to say, especially when 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 we're talking about uh, health and a, and a global virus that could turn into a pandemic at any moment here. So it's unknown, although we have some experience with past incidents called SARS or Ebola, where it did having an impact on the market, but it was short-lived and the market, almost in every case when we've had a, a pandemic or a global virus like this that is spreading from country to country, the market usually bounces back and bounces back strong from it. We've had a pronounced sell-off in the last only five or six days. Don't, it was only a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, that the S&P 500 was at an all-time high and so was the Dow industri- Industrials. So you know, we were already at, at pretty high highs and the, the skepticism and the fear and the uncertainty, those three things are kryptonite for investors and for, and for markets, right? Uncertainty is the, is the great kryptonite for markets. Those things are, uh, are causing investors to sell stocks and hide out mostly in, in bonds and fixed income uh, and in corporate treasuries, uh, U.S. treasuries in the 10-year and the 30-year, which are near – the yields are near all-time lows. So this is a fear-based market right now, not rational. Nobody knows when it will end, and I wouldn't try to catch the falling knife. But to your point, I wouldn't stop investing as you regularly would. That doesn't mean go try to buy the dip. That means if you have a plan where you put 100 bucks a week into your uh, 401k or your IRA or, or your SEP account, don't stop doing that because markets are cyclical, and they will revert to the mean eventually. This will pass. I can't say when, but you shouldn't stop your strategy as long as it is in line with your goals and your values. Well said. And thank you for reminding us of that. Speaking of being irrational, though, I mean, we've all made mistakes. And just curious if there's been a time in your, in your life when you feel like, ah, that was, a, that was silly. I, didn't, I should not have done that with my money, whether it was a bad investment or a bad purchase or, you know, some people say, I got cashed out my 401k. I don't think you ever did something like that. Hmm. No, but I have I have plenty of mistakes and I have mistakes I've made as an entrepreneur as running running my small business and I'll get to those in a second. Um, but as an investor, my mistakes have been the ones that I counsel people against now, which is trying to pick, you know, market time by the market at a certain time because you think you have some crystal ball that is better than everybody else's that will tell you when the market will go up again. So I've made that mistake. I bought Lehman Brothers on its way down before bankrupt. Uh, because I said, Le- how could Lehman Brothers be, you know, only whatever it was, eight bucks a share? Let me buy a thousand shares of this because I'm smarter than everybody and I know this bank's going to get rescued. I wasn't smarter and I lost money on that, a lot of money. Um, so I've done things like that where I felt like I had the insight or I, I, I had particular affinity for a brand. So I bought the stock, which is not the worst thing in the world, but I didn't have a strategy. So I did made a lot of mistakes as a young investor thinking that I knew more than anybody and I didn't. Uh, because maybe I worked at Bloomberg or I was a business news journalist 
Um, and I've made those mistakes way too many times. And right now I'm just an index investor and an ETF investor. Um, so I've learned my lesson and I counsel people against that. As an entrepreneur, uh, one of the first mistakes I made building my video production company was um, I thought I needed to have all the gear possible to be able to create videos on my own. And I didn't have the amount of work to be able to pay off that gear. So I loaded up on technology and this is, you know, editing decks and monitors and, and things like that. Um, and then when I, when, when I didn't have the work that those machines just sat there, uh, getting dusty and I couldn't make my payments on them. So I realized I only needed a very slim amount of gear to be able to be a videographer and go out and shoot. And then I could work with editors and pay for the edit time. I didn't need to own all the assets of production. Uh, but I had to learn that lesson by spending a lot of money and then having to resell it at a discount. Yeah, I'm looking over here at my my YouTube equipment that I bought, <laughs> uh -huh. which is going to happen. The YouTube channel will be coming in 2020 to a YouTube near you. But yeah, I, I sort of feel like sometimes too, we, for me at least, I've been delaying the launch of this, of this next step, uh, partly because... I'm procrastinating and I'm, I'm, I'm making up excuses. Well, I have to still get my camera light. I can't possibly start working on this YouTube channel until I have my tripod, you know, or whatever, whatever, <laughs> the prompter, which I got, and then it doesn't really work. So sometimes it's just an opportunity. We create these um, bad opportunities for ourselves to delay what we really should be doing. That's, that's, I guess, my, my mistake that I'm revealing. You, you bring out the worst and the best in me, Caleb. Uh, it's, it's mutual, I'm sure, <laughs> but hopefully more the best. I just bring, it's, I'm an open book on this show. What can I say? So you are now at Investopedia, and I, I joke on this show that, because Fridays I answer people's questions and I say, please don't send me a question that you can find the answer to on Investopedia, you know, or that you can Google because if you're just looking for information about what something is or how something works, you, Investopedia really is the go-to destination and it has really grown over the years at, with you at the helm of it. So tell me a little bit about, ed educate us on what Investopedia can help us with since some of us may be new to it. Sure. So we are a 20-year-old, we're almost 21 now, 21-year-old internet publisher. And 21 years in the internet is really like 250 years um, in real time, just because we've been around so, so long and through so many cycles. I'm the editor-in-chief, so I'm responsible for all the content on the site at large, although I don't write every article and I don't edit every article. Um, but my job is to make sure that our articles are of the highest quality they can be. Um, and they help answer people's questions because at the end of the day, people don't come to Investopedia um, uh, to come browse around the site. We may have some super fans that do that. We are driven by search and search is driven by intent. And by intent, I mean you or, or a reader typing into a Google or a Bing or a Yahoo. Um, what is the difference between price to earnings ratio versus price to earnings growth ratio or What's the best way to start investing $10,000 or how do I short a stock, right? These are high intent questions for investors and people in the finance uh, and business world. Uh, and we cover everything from investing to high finance to corporate finance and, and small businesses and retirement. The, we have 32,000 articles on the site answering people's questions. So th that's how people come to us through search. So our job is to have the best possible answers for them to help them answer their question and then take the next step. What we don't do, Farnoosh, is say, if people say, should I buy Amazon stock or Apple stock? We're not stock pickers, we're educators, right? 
we do some news and my background's in news. So when I came here, the idea was we would start doing a lot of news. But once we started trying to get into that game, um, we realized that we were not well suited for it. We don't have bureaus all over the world with reporters chasing stories. And P.S., a lot of the news these days is a regurgitation of a press release or, or written by a robot. Uh, and we couldn't compete there. What we wanted to do is provide the context around the news. And by that, I mean, we'll, we might write about Amazon's quarterly earnings because Amazon's a high-profile company and it's a trillion-dollar market cap and everybody, a lot of people shop from them. But what we write about is you know, the, the top businesses within Amazon that make it the most money. Who are the top shareholders of Amazon that control the most stock? We answer those secondary questions and the, and, the, and the high intent questions that are based off of the news, but are not the news that themselves. Does that make sense? It does. And I, do you do a segment or something or an article around of like, here were the top five questions people had on it that led them to Investopedia this week. I feel like that's something that could really, is so proprietary to your data that would be really interesting and probably reflective of what a lot of people are wondering about. It's a great, that's a great idea and I'm stealing it and I'm okay. going to own it. That's going to be my that's idea. That's great. I mean, you could, you could, you could shop that to like an MSNBC where you contribute or any of these other sites or what, channels because that is so proprietary to you. I remember like when, um, you know, uh, I think it was Google, like he, at the end of the year, they'll do like, here are the top things searched on Google this year. That's always a fun segment, but you guys have every day, every week at the, in the hour, you can find out what people are caring about most. Sure. I can tell you what they're looking at right now. Um, but the, that's a great idea to do it every week. We do it every year and we do it around big events. So, uh, you know, during the, the democratic debates, um, you know, we're looking at traffic and we're seeing what people are talking about when they're talking about economic policy. And that is, that is driving viewers of the debates to Investopedia to look up what is universal basic income? What does Medicare for all mean? Uh, what is student debt relief? How does that work? So we, we get a lot of traffic based on what's going on out in the world because we have so much of that reference content where people are like, what is that actually? And they go look it up. Let me give you a crazy example of that. In 2019, no, 2018, one of our top terms um, was racketeering. Uh, and racketeering is, is a conspiracy to commit some crime by two or more people. And that could be anything from kidnapping to bribery to uh, stealing an election. I don't know. Right. Could be, you could, you could, you could put that in the category as well. (laughs) So we have a very popular definition for that, but all of a sudden it started spiking like crazy. And we're like, what's going on is is somebody, uh, you know, they find Al Capone, they find (laughs) the tomb finally. Um, you know, why, why are people digging around on that article right now? And the traffic was extraordinary. It was something like up 5,000%. Come to realize that there's a rapper named Takashi six by nine, um, who's a very popular rapper I'd never heard of. And he was arrested and convicted on racketeering charges for, I think it was weapons charges and attempted kidnapping. I believe that's what it was. So they, the rap world, his fans and the people that followed him and the blogs started talking about racketeering and pointing to Investopedia's definition of it, which blew up as a result. So then we had to include Takashi six times nine into that definition because he was a notable racketeer as far as the government was concerned. That's a random, you know, uh, case of a term blowing up like that. But every week would be fascinating. And we have what we call an anxiety index on the site, which tracks um, traffic increases to key terms that, that match investor anxiety. So right now, they're worrying about a bear market, a market correction, 
uh, volatility, uh, how to short stocks. Uh, they're worrying about all these terms that we associate with anxiety. And our anxiety index on the site is screaming like a three-year-old in a toy store when it's time to go. Oh my People gosh. are really anxious right now. Or my son, every time a Transformers show ends and he wants another episode and I say no. Um, (laughs) So you grew up in a household where money was probably not taboo given what your father did for a living. But I'm curious, as you look back at your childhood going way back, what were some of the first things that you learned about money that as an adult, you're like, yeah, that was important because I still remember that moment and it kind of meant a lot to me as as I entered this world. Sure. That, great question. I uh, I did grow up in, in a house where we talked about money. It was part of, you know, my father's routine uh, to share business plans with me, to, to help educate me about what was going on. I grew up with Forbes and Fortune and Business Week, you know, uh, on the in the living room table um, to read. And I would look at the back of Forbes and the thoughts on the business of life. I remember that as a very young age. But I also knew that money could be fickle. Um, and we went through times uh, growing up where we had it and we went through times where we didn't. And I realized at a very young age that I wanted to control my own money, like having my own means and resources and the ability to earn it and spend it and then save it and invest it how I wanted to was super important to me. And I started working at around 12 years old and back in the eighties where when I was a, you know, a youngster, you could work at 12 years old in this country without too much uh, without getting arrested right <laughs> or, or having the people employ you get arrested right, so I was right. a bus boy at 12 years old and and 13 and 14 I was selling sheepskin pelts in Santa Fe New Mexico I liked making money and I liked having my own money and I remember having a little coffee jar with all my little ones from bussing tables and that was really important to me and having my own bank account and learning the passbook we had a passbook back in the day um, all of that was was important and fascinating to me because I wanted control over it um, and why did I want control because I realized that you know one day you could have it one day you, you know it might be gone um, but I didn't want to blame anybody when it was gone so that I had that sense of self-responsibility that drove me to earn and then drove me to become a saver and I'm pretty risk averse because I've Grew up with an, a venture capitalist where, like I said, you could be up one day and down the next and, and you never know. I like to know. Information is the best commodity. I think especially now with, as we just talked about, uncertainty being the worst. When you don't know something, uh, it's it's you feel extremely vulnerable. When you don't have the money, you, you feel extremely vulnerable. You are a girl dad. You have two daughters? Two daughters. Uh 15 and 13, so teenagers, love being a girl dad, um, love being surrounded by girls who, uh, and my wife, they're great singers, so I almost get a, a concert every night um, with guitar and, and, and great singing, so I am a girl dad and proud of it. Do you ever talk about money, or do you have any, any doubts that they will be able to go out there and earn and as much as, as, their, as their male peers to, to have the same sort of you know appetite for learning about money as, as some boys, uh, seems like they get a lot of the education versus girls. I know this because sure. I, I hear it from guests, but it's a fact boys get that education much more than girls. Absolutely. We are very transparent about money in our household. Uh, one, because of the nature of my work, right? I work, you know, as the editor in chief of Investopedia and they've seen me through my days at CNN, they know what I cover. They know what I do for a living. Um, so I'm always telling them what I'm, what I'm about, But I think more important than that is making sure your kids understand what their parents do for a living, 
how much they make and where that money goes and how they've invested or prepared for the future, whether that's saving for college, planning for retirement, putting money away for a rainy day. So I am very transparent with my kids around that. And it started uh, at a very young age with them. And even in the in the lemonade state stand days when my my girls wanted to put up a lemonade stand and make a few dollars outside of the uh, you know outside of our apartment. I would say to them, all right, I will front you the money to go buy the, you know, the, the lemonade mix or, and, and we will set up the table. And if you want to bake some cookies, we can do that. Uh, but I want you to remember how much we spent because at the end of the day, you're going to have a certain amount of money, but you have to know what you spent to really know what your profit is. So if they say, Hey, and they call me Poppy, Hey Poppy, I made 25 bucks today. I said, well, what about the $5 we, we, uh, we spent on the cookie dough and the, and the lemonade mix and then, Oh, you're right. So the net profit is, is $20. That to me is super basic financial literacy, but very important to get used to as a young person, because guess what? You go to college, you walk out with student debt of around 24 to 32,000. When you're 22 years old, you don't know anything about that. The first thing you see on campus when you go to college, if you go to college is the credit card stands where they want to give you a free Frisbee and a water bottle to sign up. Next thing you know, you got credit card debt, student loan debt, and you don't understand the basics of how to manage your own money. That's bad news. And we have too many people in that situation today. Yeah. I mean, not to open up a can of worms here, but what do you think should happen with student loan debt in this country? And not to get too political, but I mean, clearly this is this can't solve itself and we can't leave a whole generation bankrupt. I totally agree with you. And, you know, you look around other developed countries where the cost of education is much lower and you have a lot more people that are uh, that are, are, are debt-free or not carrying as big a debt burden as they are here in this country. So I think and the cost of education is too high. People need to consider whether or not the four-year private college is really the ticket to prosperity because it's becoming less and less so. I'm glad I had it. But if I was 18 today, I would really be thinking twice about whether that's the right path for me, depending on what I wanted to do. Um, so the cost is already too high. The fact that student loan interest rates are only recalibrated once a year is very difficult. Think about what's happened to interest rates in the past year alone. Um, but student loan rates won't recalibrate in, except for once this year. Uh, and so you don't get the chance to refinance as frequently as you do if you own a home. And that's crazy to me. Right? You should have a much, um, more opportunity to do that. And I think there needs to be more student debt relief, whether that's sponsored or, or abetted by the government, which I think could play a pretty big role in here. Um, or it's sponsored by companies that want to help their employees and new recruits lower their debt. I think those things are critical if we want a workforce and a, and a younger workforce to grow up that's smart, ready to do the kind of work we need to do in the 21st century and not saddle by debt for the rest of their life because debt brings about a whole bunch of other issues, physical ailments, sicknesses, divorce, you name it, debt is, uh, is the culprit for a lot of the problems we face. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope there's a good solution sooner than later. Now, before we go, Caleb, let's do some quick so money fill in the blanks. You've been so much fun. And this is the part of the show where I start a sentence and you just finish it and don't overthink it. It's just meant to be kind of wild and crazy. Okay. Bring, bring it. Bring it. Okay. So if I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is buy my mom a house. Yes. I like that. Where's, where's, where's home now for your mom? Um, Home is in uh, northern New Mexico, just north of Santa Fe, and they actually have a house, but I, that's the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> Get her another I one. Help, I would help them with any debts that they have and make sure that we were set up here for, uh, for college or for the next big expenses we have for our kids. Great. 
One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Great question. Uh, it's not taxi cabs because I'm taxi averse. I'm, I, I will walk you know, around the block four times to, or, or 10 extra blocks to take a train if I can. But I might say it is parking when necessary, but I have a hard time with that too. Mm-hmm. Oh, the first on so many, parking. Everybody says like my house cleaner, my babysitter. You can tell I have a lot of uh, working parents on the show. Yeah, well, that's a good one too. I, I, I have but I like it. A housekeeper is a, is a good use of money to free you up to do other things if you can afford it. But in the city, parking is such a luxury. It's such a luxury. People complaining to me, I was out in California, like, oh, I pay $15, was it a month for my parking garage or something? And I was like, are you kidding? Like, where, is it under a bridge? Like, I, I, would, I would drive to California just to park for 15 bucks. <laughs> I take a flight back. It's yeah. cheaper. Like, than when having... my wife hears this, she's going to be like, you're lying. You will drive around for an hour looking for a parking spot. And, right. and she's not wrong. Um, but lately I've been acquiescing because she gives me the old, how much is your time really worth? And right. as soon as I have to answer that question, I have to put it in the garage. <laughs> yes, yes. We ask that question a lot on this show. Okay, so, all right, here we go. When I donate, I like to give to blank because... I like to give to educational programs, um, and I like to give to uh, um, homeless uh, advocacy programs. I did some volunteering with a homeless homeless advocacy group here in New York called CUCS, where we were out trying to get homeless folks into apartments because one of the first things you need to do if you want to get right is to get an address in an apartment where you can sleep and get mail. So I donate there, and I, uh, I donate to some programs that teach art and filmmaking uh, and fine arts to underserved communities in the tri-state area. I think that's a great use of my money. And growing up uh, as an art major, I realized how important that was to me. So I love giving them my money. Wonderful. And last but not least, I'm Caleb Silver. I'm so money because? I'm so money uh, because I can make some of the best guacamole on planet Earth and ride a longboard to work at the same time. I love that. That's an original too. Oh man, love guacamole. Caleb, thank you so much. I know you have a very busy schedule. You have back-to-back newsletters that you write. You're on all the TV channels. You're running Investopedia and generously made time for us on So Money. I so appreciate you. Thank you. It's my pleasure and I would I would do it again anytime you want me to, ha- to be on the program. I'm happy to join, but I'm real proud of the work that you've done and congratulations on a thousand episodes and you just keep up the great work, partners. Thanks so much to Caleb for joining us. Check out Investopedia.com for all your financial A to Z. And Caleb is on Twitter at Caleb Silver. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.